Greg Berhalter is trying to paint the Sistine Chapel with crayons. It's apparent that, at least for now, he doesn't have the players to successfully play this style against teams that are better than the U.S. Right now, Berhalter's asking the players to adjust to the system, and many are struggling to do so. This may be the price of progress, but are we willing to pay it? Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the great new romantic that is Greg Berhalter. Mossy's going to make a case regarding China's big plan that they got going over there. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking U.S. Women's National Team. In our back three, we'll be talking the return of the leagues that uh, happen next week and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy? Greetings from St. Louis, where I am uh, coming to you prior to the U.S.-Uruguay International that's happening here. I am good. I am holding down the fort here in uh, L.A. with our producer, Alex Dowd, still in the same studio from the past year and a half. Did you watch soccer over the weekend? Because on these uh, FIFA blackout days, while there is limited uh, type of club soccer. Obviously, there's a whole lot of international soccer. So do you do you get excited for these weekends or do you feel that something's missing in your life? Uh, I am not a fan of the international break right at the start of the club season. Uh, I've said that before. I don't like it. Now, there is a special treat for me this time around. Brazil play in L.A. tomorrow night against Peru, and I will be attending the game with my good pal Keith Costigan. Looking forward to that. But generally speaking, no. I mean, I watch it, of course. I'm a football fan, but a uh, soccer fan, but I'm not that into the international stuff right now. And frankly, my weekend was split between soccer and Michigan football, which uh, brought me enough stress to last a lifetime. So, <laughs> Your Wolverines uh, of Michigan over there, um, I hope I'm getting that correct, one of the uh, fine institutions over there in the Great Lakes State. And I did, I did kind of follow this from afar. Evidently, they had a, a, a real burn burner of a game against, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it was um, Army, is that right? Correct. The Black Knights went into the big house and... Uh, and, and, and the Wolverines uh, are, are favored, and yet they almost conspired to lose that game, but they did come through. But it, it has to send off all sorts of warning flags for this team that you follow so closely. So really quick, are you still positive about a successful season when it comes to your Wolverines of Michigan? Uh, no, I am not. Uh, it's going to be a very long season. Uh, we have a bye week coming up, but frankly, the more time Jim Harbaugh and his staff have to coach this team might be for the worse because that, that guy is so lost right now. Uh, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that. Some of the play calling, some of his decision making in the fourth quarter of that game was just embarrassingly bad. So I, I am I am pretty much out on Jim Harbaugh at this point. Uh, we wow. do have a bye week coming wow. up, and then the first game after the bye week is at Wisconsin, Camp Randall, and I believe we are going to get pummeled in that game. Wow, Harbaugh out. Hashtag Harbaugh out from Mr. Mossy. All right, well, look, good news is can't possibly lose this weekend uh, because you do have that bye. Well, listen, we got so much to talk about this week uh, with all the international games uh, and so much going on in the world of soccer. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, as you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and this week, it goes a little something like this. U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter is a romantic. He is a true believer in his system and philosophy of playing out of the back and through high pressure. It's often a high-risk, high-reward proposition. It is also a departure from U.S. tradition, and to many, it represents a more progressive and evolved approach to playing the game. But Greg Berhalter is trying to paint the Sistine Chapel with crayons. 
It's apparent that, at least for now, he doesn't have the players to successfully play this style against teams that are better than the U.S. Players are often being asked to do things and being put in situations that require them to act in a counterintuitive way to what they've been taught or are accustomed to. That's a problem in a national team environment where you don't have the daily opportunity to train and grow or the weekly opportunity to implement and assess. So, do you make the players adjust to the system or the system adjust to the players? Right now, Berhalter's asking the players to adjust to the system and many are struggling to do so. This may be the price of progress, but are we willing to pay it? Qualifying for 2022 starts in less than a year. Becoming a better version of yourself is easier and faster. Becoming something you've never been, well, that's harder and slower. A lot of coaches, when it gets difficult, they lack the courage to adhere to their stated principles. In that sense, I admire and respect Greg Berhalter's unwavering belief in himself and his vision. That's how big, bold, and fundamental change often happens. But if that change is going to come, eventually Berhalter is going to need more than just crayons to create his masterpiece. All right, Mossy, there's my State of the Union for this week. It was an absolutely fascinating game, and this is a fascinating moment for me. It makes me, it makes me giddy and, and joyous and happy to see what is happening here. What were your initial impressions with regards to how the U.S. played against Mexico? And more importantly, is this a problem going forward in terms of what Greg Berhalter is obviously trying to do? Well, first off, guilty as charged. I am somebody that likes teams that are confident and fluid in possession that look to impose themselves on the opposition uh, and control games. I equate that with modern, evolved, and quote-unquote better soccer. So they say that in football the idea comes first, then the execution. You're never going to play attractive football unless you make a concerted effort to do so. And I agree with Greg Berhalter's ideas and where he's trying to take the U.S., uh, but there are legitimate questions as to whether Greg Berhalter is the right coach to take the U.S. there and whether he's going about it the right way. And I will say this, at a certain point, the ideas can't be the best thing about you. There has to be something tangible that people can grab onto. Well, you know, as I said in the State of the Union, I, I, I got a lot of time and respect for Greg Berhalter because in this day and age, I, I've sat down with so many coaches and I've seen so many coaches that We'll, we'll talk about principles. We'll talk about style of play. We'll talk about philosophy. And then the reality is that when reality does set in, uh, they get very, very pragmatic very, very quick. I, I, I think that Greg Berhalter, as I said, is a true believer. He is a romantic in the way that he envisions the game should be played. And that's how he wants this team to play. I love this moment, I, I said earlier, because it is getting people to have to face what they wanted. It, this is a come-to-Jesus type of moment for the U.S. soccer community because for a long time, people, as you mentioned, that equate possession style, playing out of the back with evolution. That's a whole other debate, by the way. Well, let's just accept that for now, that that is, that is a more evolved and progressive type of style. And by the way, as I, as I said in the State of the Union, it's also something that the U.S. is not known for. The U.S., for many, many years, counterattack, uh, absorb pressure, uh, set pieces, that type of stuff, and then, you know, just spirit, grit, if you can ever measure those or anything like that. And that's how we were able to figure out ways to compete against better teams. But this is getting people to face the situation that they asked for. And be careful what you wish for, because this is what is needed in order to achieve a fundamental change. And you have to decide, do you just want to be a better version 
or do you want to be something that you've never been before? And I think that's where this moment has brought us. And it's wonderful because it's forcing people to decide that. And a lot of people that wanted something new, that wanted change, are now saying, you know, th this is this is not what I wanted. And there's a lot of people out there that, look, don't pay a whole lot of attention to soccer, don't pay a whole lot of attention to the men's national team, except when you don't qualify. And they see you lose to your main rival, Mexico, 3 nothing at home, and I put home in quotes because we know it's, it's usually an away game when the U.S. is playing against Mexico, as it was the other day uh, in New Jersey. But they see this, and they say the U.S. men's national team sucks. And they have no context, context necessarily or understanding of what's, what's going on now. But it, it brings up a point that there is a certain segment, whether they're incredibly into the game or not, that just wants this team to find a way to be competitive, to win. But I will say this, Mossy. This is not about qualifying for the World Cup, notwithstanding the incredible failure that was not qualifying for 2018. This is not, nor has it ever been, about qualifying for the World Cup. This is about being able to compete against teams that are better than you and the elites in the world so that when you get to the World Cup, you are able to do something that hasn't been done before. And this is where the rubber meets the road here. Does Greg Berhalter have the players either now or is he developing them? And maybe those are two different questions uh, and, and very separate questions to be able to play the way that he wants. Because right now, this team is struggling. And maybe, and this is, this. I was thinking about this uh, earlier, Mossy, and, and, and bear with me for here for a second. Maybe we are seeing something right now. And it's not that I fear this, but I, I guess I suspect it that this is a ramp to 2026. And the, 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 the evolution of this is not going to be realized until that time. And so then you say, well, are we okay with potentially failing again or potentially sacrificing another cycle, either not calling for the World Cup or going to a World Cup and not doing well? in order to have this come out the other side because it's such a long-term project. But if it is, nobody has ever said that. Nobody has said this is about 2026, and I doubt that they, uh, that they ever would. But I'm, I have this sneaking suspicion that Greg Berhalter is going to play this way, which is going to mean that the players that we're seeing right now that can't adapt, they're going to age out. But there's going to be another generation behind both of players and of coaches, to be quite honest, that are going to see the way that he wants to play and are going to be aware that if they want to be a part of it, that's the way that they have to play. And this is part of that bigger plan. But I am going to be so interested on Tuesday to see how, after that result against Mexico and the way that they played, how Greg Berhalter uh, approaches this. Because if he betrays his principles, if he in a certain way capitulates or surrenders to the masses that just want a better version of ourself, it will break my heart. Now look, this might not end up well. This might not be successful ultimately. It doesn't mean it's not worth a try, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve credit for trying. But if this fails, this is on Ernie Stewart, this is on Carlos Cordero, this is on the board that approved Greg Berhalter, because obviously he came in with this being the plan, and they approved it, and they rubber-stamped it, and they said, yes, this is what we want. But in no way have I been told privately or publicly that this is about 2026. So if this is about 2022, as I said in my State of the Union, Union, he better find a way to upgrade his tools, and he cannot do it with crayons right now. And that's what is happening right now, and that potentially could be a problem going forward. 
And let me just say, the playing out of the back stuff is not restricted to the U.S. national team. I suppose if you're going to be a possession team, implicit in that is that you're going to play out of the back. But I find myself watching football today, and I feel this way when I watch Manchester City. So you can imagine when I watch the U.S. national team, I find myself thinking that uh, teams are going overboard with the playing out of the back stuff. It is not a crime against humanity every once in a while when you're under duress deep in your own half to clear the ball. And it's particularly because, you know, one uh, philosophical change begets another. And in reaction to this playing out of the back stuff, teams are pressing much higher and more ferociously than ever before. And so you have to adapt to that. And what Zach Steffen did on that second Mexico goal, the Eric Gutierrez goal, was ridiculous. I'm sorry. I don't care about style of play or whatever. There's just basic common sense. A goalkeeper under duress like that cannot try to play, get cute and play a short pass. <laughs> that ball needed to be hoofed up the field. And so, I mean, this playing out of the back stuff uh, is it's been driving me crazy throughout the world and now we're, we're confronted with it with the U.S. national team as well. Yeah, but if a coach like Greg Berhalter or Pep or anybody else actually believes that that's the way the game should be played, then I have a tremendous amount of time and respect for somebody that does say, no, I'm not going to change. And I don't blame the players. I don't blame any of the players out there. They are obviously trying to do what Greg Berhalter wants them to do. I don't blame Zach Steffen in that moment. I thought it was a little, uh, it was a little troubling and a little disconcerting to me in terms of his comments after the game. I get that you want to establish that, no, this is the way that we play, but saying that he was much happier with this uh, result as opposed to the one nothing loss in the Gold Cup, I get it kind of what you're trying to say, but I think you're being a little disingenuous and a little oblivious, if you will, to what the sentiment is out there. There's nothing wrong with saying, this is the way that we want to play, but we did not execute in the way that I want. But just because we didn't execute doesn't mean that I want them to do something different going forward. And, and look, I disagree with you, Mossy, because I think that there is such an adherence to playing out of the back and short passes, and there is such a stigma when it comes nowadays. Uh, and it, it's a little bit of a, an elitism. And you, you, know, you, you talked about it earlier on. We equate playing out of the back, and not just playing out of the back, but playing out of the back in short passes, in risky, small, high-pressure situations, we equate that with being a more evolved and progressive type of team and a progressive type of soccer. The, the long ball or the flick on in the air. You know, that is caveman or cavewoman. That is Neanderthal. That is regressive, simplistic that anybody can possibly do. Now, I'm being a little facetious here because I, I find beauty in that, and I agree with what you're saying, but I agree with it only if you are playing in a certain way, and it's not the way that he wants to play. And I, look, I talked about this uh, over the last couple of years. Be, be careful what you wish for, because this what you are seeing right now, this is how fundamental change happens. And not just in soccer, in life. Big, bold, courageous, risky moves at the highest level with the highest type of pressure. And you have to have strong individuals that believe ultimately in themselves. I've always said I'd rather have someone with what I believe is a flawed plan than someone with no plan at all. Greg Berhalter has a plan. It may be flawed, I may believe it's flawed or others may believe it's flawed, but he believes in that plan. 
And if you are going to abandon your principles, your style, your philosophy at the first sign of danger or at any sign of danger or risk or problem or challenge, then it really wasn't a philosophy or a plan uh, to begin with. And time and time again, we see that. If the U.S. comes out and is uh, against Uruguay and is a pragmatic version, a better version, if you will, of what we've been, and we start playing the ball long, and we get wonderful flick-ons, and Josh Sarden scores on a, on a counter that started with Christian Pulisic, everybody will be excited and happy. But I will be heartbroken because I know that Greg Berhalter will have capitulated to the masses that want just a better version of ourselves. And that's not what he is about. That's not what he has hired. It doesn't mean that that's not what the U.S. team needs, but that's not what they hired. And that's not what they are getting with Greg Berhalter. So, and that doesn't mean that he can't evolve as a coach and as a person. Everybody, everybody does that. But I think that he has laid down the gauntlet and said, this is who I am, like it or not. And come hell or high water, this is what we are going to do. And it could be the end of him. It could ultimately be what uh, that he is the, the sole architect of his uh, demise in terms of the way that they plan. Because there's a lot of people out there that don't believe that even if, even if they believe in the way that he wants to play, they don't believe that either now or in the future he's going to have the players available to be able to do that. And that's why I said you can look to paint a masterpiece, but if you don't have the tools and the talent at your disposal to do that, it's going to show up and you can, you can approximate it, but it's never going to be anything close to uh, the masterpiece that you envisioned. A couple more things. The Costa Rica coach, Gustavo Matosas, resigned, and he cited boredom as the reason. He said he didn't realize how boring it is to be a national team coach. Some people have raised that issue uh, with regards to Greg Berhalter, that when you're a national team coach, you have way too much time on your hands to think up all these crazy ideas and not enough time to actually implement them. Now, I will say there are examples that disprove that. Marcelo Bielsa had a pretty transformative impact on, on how Chile played without necessarily great players. But do you think there's anything to that that maybe Greg Berhalter is biting off more than he can chew that being a tactics wonk is not necessarily compatible with being a national team coach? Yeah, I think that that's you know, a, a fair comment to make, but it's it, certainly it's not a surprise to Greg Berhalter. He knew what he was getting into, and that's why. But you know, the other advantage that you have of a national team is you don't have to deal with contracts or money or anything like that. You have an understanding of what your pool is. Yes, it is limited to a certain extent, not to a certain extent, it is actually limited in, in, uh, with the amount of players that you have. But if Greg Berhalter decided to play this, uh, to play this style with the knowledge that he did not have any of the players to do so, then that's worth exploring and understanding why. And that would be disappointing to, disappointing to me. Now, he may feel that's what's coming down the pike is a, a generation that is able to, but that's much, a much more long-term uh, type of situation. And that has, not been, uh, you know, that has not been stated. But you're absolutely right that the ability to work day in and day out and develop an understanding of what you want to do, that is crucial. And that does not exist for the national team, which begs, begs the question, di did Greg Berhalter bite off more than he can chew with a national team situation, but more importantly, the way that he wants this, uh, the, the uh, you know this this team to play. I'll, and I'll, listen, I'll be fascinated to see. Last week we talked about uh, Darlington Nagby, by the way, who has refused call-ups. And this is why it's not about the best players; it's about the players that fit this system right now. 
And so there should be a clarion call going out to every single player that has the technical ability to play out of the back. And it doesn't matter how fast you are. It doesn't matter whether you're good in the air. It doesn't matter whether you are whether you have a, a great injury or anything like that. You're going to have to get the best players. Jonathan Nagby, as we mentioned last week, does not lose the ball. This, If you are going to play like this, then it behooves you to try to get someone like Darlington Nagby in because we don't have a lot of those players right now. And that's why it's disappointing that a Darlington Nagby isn't involved because I think he is tailor-made for this type of system. I will, I will leave you with this, Mossy. I would love nothing more than to be on the national team right now because the freedom in a certain sense and the courage and confidence that this approach gives a player From the outside, it's amazing. I can't imagine what it is on the inside. If I'm a center back and my coach is telling me, you know what, this is what I want you to do. It is on me. That takes the pressure off of me. Yes, I'm going to be put in situations that I'm not used to and I may sink or swim. But this is, they have somebody to blame after everything. (laughs) And usually usually you don't. And I would have loved to have been part of this great experiment that is happening right now before us. I don't know how I would have ultimately come out, but I would have loved to have been given that freedom and that opportunity to do the things that Greg Berhalter is enabling these players to do. It is a, it is a fascinating thing, as I said before. I can't wait to see how this plays out, not just in the next game, but as we go forward uh, through the next year, ultimately how this plays out in uh, in World Cup qualifying. And as I mentioned before, it's, it's, it's not just qualifying is qualifying. We're, we're going to qualify. And we may qualify playing this way because we're playing against inferior uh, competition. But when we're playing against a better team, as we did the other day against Mexico, as we probably will be doing against Uruguay, it's not the greatest Uruguay team, but it's certainly a good team, and you can make an argument that it's better than the, uh, the U.S., then, are you able to do it then? Because that's what this is ultimately about. Mossy, anything uh, to say before we move on? Yeah, last comment from me, and it's on Friday's game. U.S. fans have grown accustomed to these sobering reality checks when they face Brazil, Argentina, France, Spain, looking across the field, seeing the talent that's uh, starting, the talent coming off the bench, the the players that aren't even in the squads for these other countries, and thinking, oh my God, it, it, it just shows you how long we have to go. You're not supposed to feel that way against Mexico. That's a soccer nation that at various points in the last 30 years, the U.S. has felt like they caught up to and even surpassed. But right now, the U.S. facing Mexico almost feels like they're facing Brazil, I mean, you, you look at Tecatito and what he did on that first goal and terrorizing the U.S. defense for 70 minutes. Then he comes off and you think, oh, thank God. But then you look up and it's Irving Lozano coming on. He almost scores right away, then blows past Morales, sets up that third goal. You know, Chicharito scores. He comes off. Stu Holden reminds us that he's not even the starter anymore. It's Raul Jimenez, a guy that's banging in goals in the Premier League. You've got Guardado and Herrera in that midfield. Jonathan Dos Santos didn't even play. And then I left the best for last, Carlos Vela, who's the Messi of MLS doesn't even play for Mexico because he doesn't want to, and you don't even notice it because they have so much talent otherwise. So uh, Mexico are scary right now. They have the right coach in Tata Martino. And, you know, so it's partly due to what they're doing, partly due to the U.S. being in this transition phase. But would you agree the gap between those two? Uh, I know your generation worked very hard to eliminate that gap and make this a rivalry. The gap between Mexico and the U.S. right now feels wider than it's been in a very long time. Yes, I would agree. And it doesn't mean that it can't 
just as easily reverse course, but given the talent and the depth that they have, and you just listed it all out, it's pretty incredible what they are. But ultimately, for them, it's also about doing well in a World Cup and getting over that round of 16 uh, hump that they haven't been able to find a way past. So the talent and the depth and the confidence should, it should, should be at an all-time high, which brings up the point, if and when the U.S. is playing against Mexico in a qualifier, a World Cup qualifier, one what's going to happen, but two, where is that game going to be played? Because we know what happened last time around in Columbus. I think I think the U.S. soccer is going to move on from Columbus, so there's an opportunity out there for a market to, be, to step up and be that place that the U.S. takes, not just Mexico, but U.S. takes a, as you said, a juggernaut that is Mexico, and it'll be so fun to see where they play and how they play against this Mexico team that I think everybody can agree right now is better than the U.S., but that doesn't mean that Greg Berhalter and this team can't find a way to win. It's just about what is it going to look like when they do find that way to beat Mexico, either in qualifying home or away or in any other uh, uh, day for that matter. All right. Mossy, moving on. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time again for Mossy makes the case. That time when my good friend David Mossy cases for something out there in the world. What are you making a case for this week, Mossy? My case is that China is taking a bold step in its quest for global domination. We're taping this on a Monday. Tomorrow, China begin their qualifying campaign for the 2022 World Cup. They are away to the Maldives. And included in Marcello Lippi's squad is 30-year-old Brazilian striker Elkison, who recently obtained Chinese citizenship by virtue of having lived in the country for five years. He's played his club football in China since 2013. Elkison is the first player without Chinese ancestry ever to be called up to the national team, but it appears he will not be the last. Several other players have been approached and are at various stages of the process of obtaining citizenship. China is going all in on the naturalized citizenship route. Keep in mind, China is the most populous nation on the planet with 1.4 billion people, but they've only appeared in one World Cup back in 2002. Their current president, Xi Jinping, is a massive soccer fan. He's spoken about how his dream is for China to not only qualify for World Cups, but also to host and win a World Cup in the relatively near future. There's been major investment in that country at the grassroots level, all in an effort to develop Chinese players, but it's yet to pay dividends. The national team continues to struggle. They are ranked 71st in the world. So this is the path they've now chosen. And as you can imagine, it's divided opinions. The Federation chief did say it is a short-term measure aimed at qualifying for the next World Cup, but this is not a long-term policy. But I will say, as a wise man likes to say, and I'm not sure how this translates in Chinese, you can't get a little pregnant. (laughs) All right. So obviously something like this takes leadership, takes somebody being that front person with, more importantly, that has power, and you need a champion in this moment. And then you need cooperation and understanding of what the, of what the vision is. Uh, it's not the first time necessarily that this has been talked about or, or implemented. And we know China with uh, the incredible population, and a lot of times people say, well, well, you have a population of 350 million people in the U.S. Why aren't you better? So we know just because it's bigger doesn't make it, uh, doesn't make it better. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this ultimately plays out for a country that has certainly made plenty of noise when it comes to the amount of money that they have spent with their league. But it's also in a certain way similar and parallel to the U.S. in that the 
excitement and the uh, you know the the history and the culture has been so heavily influenced by what has happened in Europe as opposed to what has happened uh, domestically that changing the perception of what local soccer is, domestic soccer is, either from a league or a team, or in this case, even an individual perspective, can be very, very difficult when people equate international influence, money, other teams traveling there, or actually other players playing there. They equate that with quality, changing that and getting them in a strange way to accept and embrace a pride for what is coming out domestically. That's not easy. Plus, these are businesses. And ultimately, you are selling to people and, and customers, and you're trying to give them what they want. And if you, are, uh, if you are handcuffed and limited as to what you can do for this greater good, how, how powerful is that? And how much can that how, how long can that last, and can it have the impact uh, that we're talking about? I think it's going to be an interesting, interesting type of experiment as to how it affects the national team, first and foremost, because that's the ultimate goal, but also how it affects the perception of soccer in that country and the league in that country that is doing this for the benefit. I have always said that Major League Soccer, for example, their responsibility is not to make the national team, the U.S. national team, better. If that happens, it's a byproduct. Their responsibility is to make their business as strong as possible. And in doing so, I think certainly over the last five years, we have seen a effort uh, and a direction and a real uh, organized type of effort to, uh, to increase the international influence, which in turn has, made, has limited opportunities for domestic players and for players that are U.S. men's national team eligible. Is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? We can, argue, we can argue about that, but that's ultimately what is happening, as opposed to what you're describing here, Mossy, which is going the absolute opposite way. And once again, it might be, just like we talked about in that first segment, a situation where you take a step back in order to go two steps forward, but selling people on that big picture national pride, I don't know how easy that is. I'm not, I'm not in China. Have I, have I encapsulated the situation uh, in a proper way, or am I missing something? Yeah, I mean, just to give a little bit more background, China was very influenced by Qatar winning the Asian Cup with a squad full of naturalized players, and obviously Qatar is hosting the next World Cup. Uh, they've already, China, dipped their toe in the water here. This past year, they called up a player who was born in England, but his mother was Chinese, so people didn't have that big an issue with that. The threshold they're crossing here is by starting to call players that have no Chinese ancestry. Now, without getting into politics, some people argue there's a benefit here because in China, they have a very strict definition of what it means to be Chinese, and this might help that society become more open-minded and multicultural. So we'll see. I mean, that, that would be a nice byproduct of this whole thing. Uh, but from a footballing standpoint, you mentioned the interesting part to me. It's that Chinese clubs made a big splash in the last few years, spending all this money on foreigners. And the federation reacted to that by instituting all sorts of rules limiting foreign players. You can only have four per team. Only three can play at the same time. They instituted a 100% tax on any signings that cost above a certain amount. And that money then went to grassroots programs to fund academies and such. So they were very adamant that, look, we can't lose focus. The priority here of this league is to develop Chinese players to help the national team. 
And it's interesting. You talk about how sort of bailing on a project at the first sign of trouble that they've already thrown their hands up in the air and said, here, you know what? Let's just go this naturalized player route and, and at least try to qualify for a World Cup or two here to kind of develop some momentum here and, and, and gain some interest. And then we can sort of resume all our programs aimed at trying to develop Chinese players. So it's an interesting direction they've chosen to go. Well, you, you know, you mentioned the it's almost a, a win at all costs. And, and what are you willing to do? And these these questions of of what is in this instance it would be what is what what is a Chinese international player, <laughs> and 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 you know the the you know historic uh, way that people think about it and you know we deal with this in in the United States and every country deals with it but in this day and age with with the incredible migration and immigration that we have around the world definitions are changing all the time and historic definitions or perceptions of what this person is or what this nationality is based on the way you act or the way you look or where you're from or, or, or a million different a million different things go into what people feel is a quote unquote national is changing and it will change and and I, that I I am going to be really interested to see how perceptions of what a national team player or what a Chinese player is change as more and more players come in. But we talk about also the fact that there are a certain amount of of mercenaries. And so if you're—I've always thought that representing your country is so much more than anything else. Representing a club, yes, it can be personal, but, but you're getting paid. It is a job. And the connection that you have, while it may be strong, it pales in comparison to representing your country. And if in that moment when you are putting on that jersey and putting your hand over your heart and singing that song and representing that country, if you don't feel something above and beyond when you're standing with a club team, if you don't feel that you are part of something bigger than yourself, I think that's I think that's a problem. And if you're just standing up there as a mercenary because you have the opportunity to play on a national team or play or possibly play in a world cup if it really if it really goes well i get it but i think and look there's no way to judge somebody's level of <laughs> of commitment uh, you know from the inside it just either it either happens or it, or it, or it doesn't happen but this if if china were to win qualify for a world cup and do well in a world cup and it was all populated by players that had little or no connection to China other than a grandmother or a grandfather or a father or a mother or something like that, or had never been there, didn't speak the language, and only by, by virtue of, uh, of their family had they have any connection uh, with that. It doesn't mean that that person can't fully appreciate and respect and love and celebrate doing that. But it also doesn't mean that they're not going to come in for, for some criticism, uh, mostly externally and probably internally, about what they are fielding in order to be successful. And how far do you, uh, do you want to go? And, I mean, if, if we just open it up and anybody could play for any national team out there, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as interesting. It wouldn't be as interesting to me. But... You know, I don't know. Do you, do you think that ultimately this works in terms? Because that's 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 the biggest question: is does this work from a Chinese perspective in terms of qualifying them uh, and then having them be successful on the international stage? 
I do. I think it's going to make them significantly better in the short term, and we'll see if the, it's certainly done that with Qatar, and we'll see if uh, China stick with it. I will say, you know, it's a big decision for these players because China doesn't permit dual nationality, so you have to renounce your citizenship to your birth country, change your name, and you're required to learn the language, the national anthem, the culture. Uh, you have to learn the values of the Communist Party of China, and you're you're quizzed on that periodically. So it's not like changing your toothpaste. It's a it's a big decision these players are making, and and they're willing to make it uh, because they want to play in the World Cup. And also, you know, in some cases, they they genuinely have developed an identification with China from living there for several years. And a Brazilian, I mentioned Elkison, he wrote a blog post to try to win over support, and he said, "Look, I I genuinely feel Chinese now." So, you know, who, who are we to judge? I, I do think that this stuff is more likely to happen when you have foreign managers because they're going to be less sensitive to, you know, national sensitivities. Uh, they, they're about wins and losses. And, you know, they almost approach a national team job almost like a, a club job. Uh, but you were involved in a situation where you had an American coach, Steve Sampson, that brought in David Regie on the eve of a World Cup. Take us back to that situation. And also just were you surprised that an, an American, Steve Sampson, went that route? Is that something that you would have expected more from a Jurgen Klinsmann or a Bora Milutinovic? I mean, do you buy the notion that a foreign manager of a national team is more likely to do this than, than actually a guy that was born in that country? I, I completely understand what he was doing. He, he was a manager. And it's, and it's hard, especially when you're a manager of an up-and-coming type of team and one that doesn't have tons of choices and doesn't have a tremendous amount of depth and quality and, and talent. You will forgive many, many things. I, you know, Steve Sampson was trying to get the best possible team on the field. And the players' backgrounds or, or you know, whatever, you know, one, one again, the litmus test, whatever that litmus test is, that that didn't matter, and so you know you were talking about the the Chinese uh, Federation and the hoops that they are evidently going to have to make uh, are going to demand that a lot of these players go through, and that's that's all fine and well, except when you have a great player who can make your team better, but has none of that background that we talked about and doesn't want to do any uh, any of that. Are you willing to stand on? principle and say no this is what we demand because that's or you're gonna <laughs> it's amazing what you will forgive in order to be better as a team whether it's a club team or whether uh, or whether it's a national team ultimately like I said I just I just want to know when I'm standing up there in that shirt with my hand over the heart that everybody in front of me and behind me in that line of 11 players is committed to what we are doing from a sports perspective but feel something bigger and a bigger responsibility and a pride and ultimately a love for the country that they are representing. And it's impossible to measure. You can't, there's no, there's no instrument to measure that. It either, either you have it or you don't. And that's for the coaches to decide whether it's okay. But and I've said this before, it's amazing what players and coaches will forgive in order, to, uh, in order to win a game. But I do think from a national team perspective, it has to be more about you're just a good player. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see how this works uh, over China. We're always talking about China because they're always kind of knocking at that door and trying to do things differently and obviously spending a tremendous amount of money in, in what they are doing. And we'll see if this translates. And, and more importantly, the Chinese culture and country, if they embrace what is happening, and if it is successful, I mean, can you imagine the, uh, if, if it is successful, the, uh, the support? I can, well, I can imagine it, but, I, but I, in practice, I wonder how much it will be supported going forward if that Chinese team 
that is representing this country has a lot of players that people that are watching don't necessarily relate to. It'll be a fascinating social experiment, too, going forward. All right, anything else, Mossy? Let me just end on this, just so the grant walls of the world don't come after me. We're obviously talking about men's soccer. China has had success on the women's side. They've hosted World Cup. They got to the famously the 99 final loss of the U.S. at the Rose Bowl. So uh, this is specifically a men's soccer conversation regarding China. Well done, Mossy. <laughs> you wouldn't want Grant to come out after you. Boy, that's 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 a that's a, a world of hurt that you don't need. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi, and you send us your questions, your comments, and concerns, and we pick out a few of them and read them on air, as we're about to do right now. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? At BB Fox Jr., why can't or won't pro soccer add more refs to the field? College and NFL games have seven on the field with the same numbers of players. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting take. Well, we already established earlier that Size uh, does not necessarily equate with uh, with quality. So yes, there are more eyes now. With now with VAR, there are, I guess you could make a case that there are thousands of eyes in terms of the cameras and the angles and and all of that that's going on. I think well, first off, there's a added expenditure for more personnel on the field. Uh, second off, there's more bodies on the field. Are those reasons enough not to do it? No. They have experimented in the past with four referees and just the way that the game flows and the way that referees move and the, uh, the balance that exists, it just, it just never quite worked and it didn't necessarily translate into a better quality refed game. So they have experimented in the past with, uh, with those types of things. I don't think that they are going to add referees. And obviously we've seen goal line referees be implemented in certain tournaments and leagues. So those are more sets of eyes. Has that fundamentally changed the way the game is refereed? And is, is it, have we seen a marked improvement because of having those eyes at different places? Yeah, I don't, I, not really. I'm sure there's some study out there that can tell us one, one way or the other. But the ah moment and that shock moment of saying, oh, why is it taking us so long to do it? That has never, at least the way that I've seen it, that has never appeared in terms of adding new, uh, new referees on the field. So I don't, think it's, I don't think it's going to happen, certainly not in the numbers that we see when it comes to American football uh, out there. And just because you add more numbers doesn't necessarily make it, uh, make it better. All right, what else? I will say uh, one thing that football could learn from soccer is since the advent of VAR, linesmen have been told when a play is unfolding, even if you think you spotted an offside, don't raise your flag just yet. Wait for the play to conclude, then raise your flag, because if it ends up in a goal and we review it and it turns out you were wrong, the goal can stand. If you raise your flag in the middle of a play and everybody stops, then if you were wrong, there's nothing that we can do with that. And I only bring that up because in the Michigan Army game that we alluded to earlier, Michigan was denied a touchdown. We picked up an Army fumble. Josh Metellus ran it into the end zone. The referee blew the whistle because he thought Metellus' knee was down. It clearly wasn't. 
and Jim Harbaugh was not able to challenge it, was not reviewable because the whistle had blown, which was ridiculous. And so uh, I think referees in football need to get in their heads, stop blowing plays dead. If there's any doubt, let the play unfold. And then if the knee was down, we can go back and review it and, and take away the touchdown. But sorry, a little Michigan rant there. But uh, <laughs> amidst, amidst our terrible play, we also did get a little bit screwed by the referees. So that was an element of that game as well. God, Moving on. Such a whiner. Man, oh, man. <laughs> But, you know, Michigan facing Army, we can't catch a break. You know, it's not like we have any other advantages in that matchup in terms of resources. Oh, poor all. little Michigan, the poor little Wolverines, <laughs> the little engine that could over there at the uh, the big house. Is that what you guys call it over there? Yeah. That nickname might need to be changed. The, that, that nickname connotes sort of grandeur and prominence in, in this program right now. My God. Right. The little shed now. The, the Wolverines yeah, the playing shed. over there at that little shed. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Uh, second question. At... Yuki Stryker, 88. Why do you think the U.S. women's national team players don't play in Europe? I know they're the best players in the world, but truly the European leagues are better than the NWSL. Is it money or just wanting to be close to home? Love the pod, exclamation point. Nice. So thank you for that, Yuki. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation we've been wanting to have since we got back from Paris. Um, I'll just say my bit quickly on it, then I'll get out of the way. I'll let you talk. Because I've thought a lot about the club versus country dynamic in women's soccer and uh, particularly how it pertains to the U.S. national team. The U.S. has essentially turned that dynamic on its head. Uh, U.S. players spend more time with the national team than they do with their clubs. It feels like they're NWSL players in name only. Their club is the U.S. national team, and that certainly contributes to their World Cup success because they train and play more often than other countries do. But I do wonder about the long-term growth of women's soccer because if you focus so much on the national team, invariably you're going to become like an Olympic sport that's only truly relevant for a month every four years. You're going to have these abnormal spikes in interest, but then a major come down. And I do wonder if some of these European countries that are putting more emphasis in developing their domestic leagues are farther down the road of making women's soccer relevant 12 months out of the year. How do you see that? All right. Well, a couple of things. Uh, number one, despite the, the challenges that professional uh, women's soccer in the United States has had over the years, and even NWSL continues to have, it is still the number one league in the world in terms of the quality that it produces. And that was evident in terms of the numbers of players that we saw that uh, that played in NWSL that play in the World Cup. And it was also evident in the fact that the entire women's national team, uh, U.S. women's national team, applied their trade in NWSL. And Keep in mind, there's also some contractual things with the association and the collaboration with the United States Soccer Federation. So there is a vested interest and contractual obligations that the women's uh, team has and supplementation when it comes to money, not to get too much uh, into the weeds. Having said all of that, with what is happening right now, and this comes on the eve of... uh, um, uh, you know, on the heels, excuse me, because this has already happened over there with the uh, WSL having an, a record-breaking weekend, huge crowds. We've seen over the last couple of years some very big crowds, and some of those have been free tickets and, and kind of promotional things, but still there is an appetite out there that is growing. And we know the circus comes and goes when it comes to a World Cup, but with some added incentive and interest and using that platform of the World Cup, you can see that Europe is starting to get bigger and better. And here's the problem from an NWSL standpoint and a U.S. soccer standpoint right now is that there are a lot of players right now that grew up watching, in a a men's context, all of these big elite super clubs out there. And so when an Arsenal or a PSG or a Real Madrid or a Barcelona or a Manchester United or, or insert your big super team there 
has an opportunity to play over there. It's not just the opportunity to play in the league and play soccer. It's also an opportunity to go and to live in these places and to experience these places. And in some cases, to go to some very, very big clubs and be part of that big machine. And that is incredibly appealing. And so... You know, how do you keep them down after you know down on the farm after they've seen Paris and 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 other places, not just uh, not just Paris. So, I think going forward, U.S. soccer and NWSL has got to be really, really careful, and they got to double down their efforts because you will start to lose players who want opportunities. And these big clubs, they got plenty of money. So if they want to do it, and when they want to do it right, and some of them are already starting, and maybe they're starting slow. If they want to do it and do it right, they will very, very quickly be able to not only compete, but at times blow the uh, opportunities in terms of a salary out of the water. And they will attract. They will attract good players. And the U.S. has plenty of good players. And players will migrate. They will go to opportunities that pay them more. They will go to opportunities where they feel that the experience is beneficial to them, either on or off the field. And that can happen very, very quickly uh, as we as we have seen. But the advantage of having all the players play back in the United States and play in a league is that they are at your disposal. They're all on the same time frame. They're all on the same uh, they're very easy to get together. And that, that advantage Jill Ellis has had for now multiple cycles for, in this case, all of them, or at least almost all of them uh, in the past playing in the domestic league right now. But they can catch you and pass you by very, very quickly if you are not prudent. And there are still plenty of challenges that uh, women's professional soccer faces day in and day out. And we are not too far removed from a past that saw multiple professional women's soccer leagues uh, fold because the business just didn't work. It can be very, very difficult. So that's, you know, that's a long way of saying that they're not playing there now, but it would not surprise me if in the future we see a much bigger and greater and therefore possibly detrimental to an NWSL perspective, migration of players going to uh, places overseas as these countries and as these cultures and as these leagues start to ramp up their women's side. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I scripted all our shows this summer. And for these players on these other teams, I was constantly mentioning their clubs. It, it felt relevant to bring up the fact that Lika Martins plays for Barcelona and just took them to the Champions League final where they lost to Lyon, who have all these Big French stars, the Wendy Renards, Eugene Le Sommers, Vivian Midema coming off a great season with Arsenal. Barbara Brancea plays for Juventus alongside our Annie Luco. Meanwhile, in five weeks, uh, U.S. national team, I never mentioned once the club team for any of the players. It never felt relevant to me. If you're talking about Alex Morgan or Carly Lloyd or Megan Rapinoe, there was always something national team related that was more at the forefront of my mind, some record, some milestone they're about to break. Um, so it just speaks to sort of the different mentalities there and be interesting to see if that continues or if that changes in the future. Yeah, I mean, look, these, uh, the, this team is a star and a juggernaut, the likes of which we have never seen. And relative to the club teams, it's night and day, as are the individual players. I mean, they are stars not because of the club teams that they play for or the league that they play in. They are stars because of the national team and the success that they have had on the international uh, stage winning, uh, winning World Cups. And so, look, we all returned from that that glory of playing in a World Cup, they returned as champions, but anybody that's played in a World Cup returns to a, a club setting. And more often than not, it's just a very different type of culture and setting. And sometimes it's, it's a, a step down in terms of 
the way that you feel. That's just, you know, that's just natural. But, you know, ultimately, and I do hear the women's national team players trying uh, to promote NWSL and saying, hey, you saw us play in the World Cup. You can see us week in and week out. But that's a very different type of proposition, watching a club team and watching a, a player or a team play week in and week out and having that part of your steady diet as opposed to that brief shining moment that happens in the summer of a World Cup. And that's that's always the difficulty, is parlaying that, that attention and that success into long-term sustained success from a club standpoint. And I don't think that NWSL has uh, you know has as a formula that gets it completely right but they should be better off as are other leagues around what else mossy and lastly alex dowd's fun question of the week uh at <laughs> ame singly i think that's how you pronounce that uh what is your favorite city you've ever played in besides la I loved playing in San Siro Stadium in uh, Milan. Played there a number of times. It's a it's a wonderful stadium, and obviously it's a really fun city. You know, when I played in Rome, the the stadium wasn't great. Any stadium that has a track is just not fun. I played in the old Wembley Stadium, and that was awesome to be able to play, even though I got booed every single time I touched the ball and Alan Shearer scored two goals uh, against me while I was trying to mark him. It was still a blast to be able to do that. That's, that's you know, Milan uh, in San Siro, it was my first exposure to the, the big time, if you will. Obviously, I played in uh, Azteca and that's all, that, you know, that's, that's certainly, that, that's certainly fun. As, as with regards to domestic uh, stadiums out there, it was always so much fun to play in the old well at that point it was Gillette Stadium I guess uh what was what was the old Foxborough in Boston outside of Boston and I scored against England there it was we always had such a good time going to Boston as a city I'm talking about a national team uh even before MLS started going there there was such great support we always had great crowds the games always ended up being interesting and that stadium old Foxborough Stadium was just it was a big stadium, but it just ended up being intimate, and we, it, was, it was always just great memories of both the game uh, and then having a blast in a city like Boston, which is tailor-made for a guy like me. So there you go. All right, anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our Back Three, where we talk about some of the biggest stories and games and moments over the last week. Mossy, what's in our Back Three this week? Well, we're in the midst of an international break. Euro 2020 qualifying taking place. Uh, that tournament will be next summer, and it's a little bit different. It's, it's not in one host country. It's going to be in various places. So, I mean, some of the big talking points have come out of the last few days. Uh, England with a very impressive performance against Bulgaria. Harry Kane with a hat trick. Uh, they now face Kosovo next. Germany lost to the Netherlands, which has... Lots of people were wondering about Yogi Love's future and whether he's overstayed his welcome there. And the likes of Portugal, France, victorious as well. Uh, what were your big takeaways from what you saw the last few days? Well, you know, it's interesting, the, uh, the Harry Kane hat trick and the continued improvement, I think, uh, and progression of England. And, you know, we talked earlier uh, about China and the, the opening up uh, and by design, opening up opportunities for domestic players and for national team eligible players in order to improve the national team, and yet we see it. We see a country like England, which has gone the opposite way, where it's become so much more difficult for England 
national team eligible players to find consistent playing time in what many argue is the best league in the world. And yet, despite that, the national team has really surged. And whether it's the development and the young players that have come up, uh, or just the way that this team has been put together, and the coaching, and I don't think in the last, I don't know, 25 years, this has got to be the highest level of of confidence in terms of way the, the the team is perceived out there that we've seen. And that's that's a great thing. And maybe it's that they are, while there are fewer opportunities, the opportunities that they do have and the English players that are able to break through, they're breaking into a much more competitive environment and that puts them on a, a, a much faster type of trajectory to get better. And so that level of competition actually plays into developing better players as opposed to gifting them opportunities. But, you know, I don't know if that's the case or not, but, you know, England continues to be a team that, yes, it has a wonderful history. And yes, there are often expectations and high expectations and at times unrealistic expectations. But the high expectations right now, I don't think anybody can argue that they are unrealistic in terms of what this team can do going forward. And we saw a glimpse of it in the World Cup in 2018. You know, I think they're going to qualify for ease for the Euros, and there's going to be an expectation for them not just to compete but to win it. And I think it's completely founded that you expect England to be challenging for the title, both whether it's challenging for the title of Europe or next World Cup to be challenging for a World Cup. Yeah, I'm very high on England as well. I think France have earned the right to be viewed as favorites for Euro 2020. They just won the World Cup. It's going to be virtually the same squad with uh, that nucleus of Mbappe and Griezmann and Pogba and Conte, etc. But to me, the other two countries that are right there are England and Portugal. Also very high on Portugal. They won the last Euros. They won the Nations League. Ronaldo still going strong. Now you've got guys like Bernardo Silva, Jerome Felix, Bruno Fernandes flanking him. So to me, France, England, and Portugal look to be the three strongest European nations right now. Uh, I mentioned Germany before. Yogi Love took over after the 2006 World Cup, uh, replacing Jurgen Klinsmann. And, you know, they stuck with him even after the debacle going out on the group stage of the last World Cup. I mean, is this, I mean, 13 years in charge, is this just too much and it's time for him to step aside and it's just grown stale with him and, and, and they need to find a new manager? Nail on the head. Stale. I think it's just gotten stale. It's not that he's not a good coach. It's not that he doesn't know what he's doing. But I just think there's some there's sometimes where change for change is good. And I think it's just it has come to a point where a change in leadership, not even necessarily a change in approach, but just a change in, in personality and leadership at the top, I think could be beneficial. And look, Yogi Love's going to go on and he will go down as one of the greats and he will go on and have plenty of opportunities right now. But I think, I think a national team, I think it's really hard to have sustained success and sustain and longevity in that type of position. We talked earlier about the, the unique aspects of a national team coach not being able to train every single day. And I, I do think that even though it's limited in terms of the, the times that you see the players, it doesn't mean that it doesn't get stale and that you can't be better served at different times by bringing somebody new in. And I think that that's the point that they've gotten to. All right, moving on, we'll shift to club football. Uh, MLS, the regular season is winding down. 
One thing interesting is the galaxy right now on the outside looking in. Uh, we'll start there. Uh, how catastrophic would it be for that franchise to miss the playoffs again with Zlatan and having brought in Skiloto and, and, and Pavon and the, the talent that they have? Uh, what yeah, do you make it, of the galaxy it, right now being on the outside it would looking be, in? It would be catastrophic. It would be unacceptable. It would be now three years in a row that they wouldn't have made the playoffs, I think, if my calculation is correct. And it would have, be, it would have been done under a new coach, and it would have been done under a, uh, Zat, a Zlatan-led team. And so how it would reflect on the galaxy, how it would reflect on Zlatan, both of those, both of those things, I think it would be reflected poorly. So, but it's going to be a race to the end. It's going to be a musical chairs. We all know that LAFC is going to win Supporter Shield and uh, congratulations to them already right now. That's, that's all fine and well. It's going to be a wonderful decision day or decision day weeks that we're going to have at the end of the uh, season here. And we'll be covering it all. We'll be going to game after game after game and doing multiple games at the same time. So we'll, we'll bring all of that to you. And it's going to be fun to see this musical chairs because there are so many teams in contention. And there's very few teams that you can point to that say that they are out of contention. Whether they're above the line or below the line, every team in both conferences is licking their chops at an opportunity. But it's going to get very tense going down to the end, which is what we want. What we want to see, you know, New York, New York City FC clinched a playoff spot, and they are sneaky good because no one's been talking about this team. Uh, they had, the, you know, with 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 coaching changeover and play, and personnel changeover, and you know the continued playing in Yankee Stadium. They've just been kind of cruising along, and nobody's really been talking about this team. But they, in, in a very quiet way, have become sneaky good. Philadelphia Union have, have, hasn't been quiet at all this year, and that they're up there, I think, is a surprise even to them. But they are a very good team that I don't think you necessarily want to meet uh, in the playoffs. And Atlanta FC, which started out dismally, has come around, and the DeBoer regime has found a way, to be fair, though, in terms of letting them play the way that they want as opposed to the way that he wanted them to play at the beginning, and it has produced some great results and has catapulted them back back up. But even in the Eastern Conference, you got teams like Montreal— Two points uh, out of the lo- below the line. So, and even Orlando City, if they if they were to get on a roll here at the end, they could do some they could do some damage. Chicago, everybody is going to be in it. Everybody's going to be jockeying for position. We all know that having that home game theoretically is uh, is an advantage, and it's only that one game. And MLS decided this year to to change things, ironically, to give more advantage and more importance to the regular season and where you finish to be able to host that game at home. But it's still just one game at home. One of the reasons why you know, hockey and baseball, ultimately the best team can win out is because in a series of five or a series of seven, ultimately the, the, the best team wins out. In a one-off game, especially in a game like soccer, and especially in a league like MLS with its manufactured parity, anybody can win. And it's played out many, many times over the past where just because you're the home team doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win. But there is an advantage, and I think teams recognize that all things being equal, you certainly want to host that game. And so there will be that jockeying for that spot, either to have the bye in the first week or to uh, to have that home game when the playoffs start. In terms of a uh, coach of the year, is it Bob Bradley all the way, or could you make the case for a Jim Curtin or a Matias Almeida? Yeah, I think, well, Bob Bradley, yeah, I, th- I would vote for Bob Bradley for what he has done. And not just the points that he has accumulated with this team, 
but the way that they have played. You know, we spent a lot of time earlier in the pod talking about Greg Berhalter, and I think Bob Bradley also is a true believer in his version of the way the game should be played, and I think he has tried to implement that, and I think he's been very successful at doing that and giving LAFC supporters and all of us that are watching this team a steady diet and a consistent diet of a way to play. And I think he should be commended for that. And I think that he should be celebrated in, in, in terms of the points that he's gotten, but the way that he has gotten those points. They are a fun team to watch. Yes, they have stars. And yes, they have spent a good chunk of money to, uh, to hedge their bets. But he's had to coach all of those players and to get them to buy in. And he's gotten Carlos Vela to be arguably the, uh, the MVP and consistently produce. All right, we'll end on Bundesliga, which resumes this upcoming weekend with one of the matches of the season on Saturday. RB Leipzig play host to Bayern. Leipzig off to a great start. Three wins out of three. They sit atop the table. This match uh, features two strikers that are on fire. Timo Werner with five goals already this season. Lewandowski with six. They've each gotten hat-tricks already. Werner got one against Gladbach. Lewandowski got one against Schalke. I know a lot of us at Fox have been really sort of pumping up this notion that somebody other than Bayern is going to win the Bundesliga this season, either Dortmund or Leipzig, and you've been poo-pooing it a little bit, kind of I'll believe it when I see it. If Leipzig were to win this game, beat Bayern, and make it four wins out of four to start the season, uh, would that perhaps make you a real believer? Yes, it would. And, you know, I, I still think that you know, even before, you know, I, I even before we started talking about this, it's okay to say that Leipzig is a potential title winner. I've just said that if I had to go and put money on it, I'd still put it on uh, Bayern Munich. But this will be a this will be a huge game, a huge test for both of these teams. And we know that that Borussia Dortmund slipped up, curiously slipped up, uh, but slipped up. Uh, and we know that Borussia Dortmund likes to slip up at different times, even especially when we least expect it. If RB Leipzig is a true contender down the line. They got to find a way to win these important games. We know all three of these teams, Richard Dortmund, RB Leipzig, and Bayern Munich, they're going to win their games against the inferior competition, for the most part, uh, with all due respect to uh, Union Berlin uh, and their result against Richard Dortmund. But if you slip up against those teams, then you're in big trouble. But they're really going to be judged, and really where it's going to be won and lost are these proverbial six-pointers, if you will, against these other the other two teams that we're talking about winning the Bundesliga. But I'm still going with Bayern Munich. But if, if RB Leipzig finds a way to beat Bayern Munich, then they will turn more heads than they already have. Let me just say this, and maybe if I was German or I lived in Germany or I played in Germany, I would feel differently. I know Ian Joy disagrees with me on the point I'm about to make. But the emergence of Leipzig, in my view, has been a positive for the Bundesliga. And we see these protests every week against them. I know they've German folk take pride in the 50-plus-1 rule and the fact that they haven't lost their soul the way the Premier League supposedly has. And they see a club like Leipzig skirting those rules, and it, it offends their sensibilities. But I'm sorry. The bigger issue for the Bundesliga in terms of its global credibility is... The, the level of dominance that Bayern have attained here in the last seven years, and it was destroying the credibility of this league. It, it's, it's become a punchline, and people look at it as a one-team league. And the emergence of Leipzig a, a, as a real challenger to Bayern, to me, is ultimately a positive. And uh, you may not like the way they're doing it, but I'm sorry. And, and when I say the way they're doing it, it's not like they're a PSG or a Manchester City that's going, going around throwing crazy money at established world-class players. They've actually been very smart in the way they've used that money, and they've signed 
sign and develop young players. And there's so much to admire about how they've built their team. So I don't share this antipathy towards Leipzig that so many others do. I'm happy that a Leipzig exists now and we can actually look at a team like them and say, hey, they might be able to challenge Bayern and win the Bundesliga this season. And we could look forward to a game like this weekend is this this mega matchup that everybody in Europe is going to have their eyes on. To me, that's a positive. How do, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, I'm a uh, devout uh, capitalist and uh, corporate shill <laughs> and will always side uh, on uh, in terms of the man and big business. So I, I love uh, RB Leipzig and what they uh, what they have done. So <laughs> long live uh, RB Leipzig and uh, and their approach, uh, their approach to the game. I, I, I do agree that it is a is a good thing. Anybody that's going to challenge uh, Bayern Munich is a good thing and that they are challenging both Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund in the way that they are doing it, all right, once again, we're, we're back to the romance, if you will, and, and or the lack of romance in terms of the way that they have gone about their business. But ultimately, we are the beneficiaries of a better team and therefore a better league when it comes to the, the competition. So I say, keep doing what you're doing, RB Leipzig. And, and, and leagues are about villains. Leagues are, leagues are about villains. And you can paint people or teams or entities or whatever you want in in different ways and RB Leipzig will have no problem playing uh playing the villain and I love it because it gives us more personalities it gives us more characters to talk about when it comes to a league and a league that needs that they need more narratives and they need more discussion and debate and good and bad and uh positive and negative and saints and sinners and <laughs> good and evil and all that kind of stuff so bring them on yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe Union Berlin, the first round of the season, their fans spent the first 15 minutes in silence in protest of Leipzig. And the fact that they couldn't put the Leipzig thing aside and focus more on the fact that it was their first ever Bundesliga match and, and make that a, a bigger spectacle was just mind-blowing to me how much this Leipzig thing, people are obsessed with it. And I mentioned Union Berlin. They, of course, beat Dortmund last time out. And wouldn't that be classic Dortmund if, like, Bayern do slip up this season, and, but instead it's Leipzig that swoop in there and win the title and not Dortmund, <laughs> who have been the team that have been knocking on the door and kind of waiting for Bayern to leave that door open, and, and, and they end up not being the ones that capitalize. So, uh, But, yeah, Dortmund obviously will have an eye on that. Leipzig Bayern result as well. Uh, I think we're all looking forward to it. It should be a phenomenal game. All right, Masi, anything else? No. All right. Well, we come to the end of yet another State of the Union podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. But at the end of each podcast, we always do our uh, one big thing. And it goes back to Greg Berhalter and the idea of doing something big and bold. And in doing that, doing something that is risky and requires courage. Uh, Mossy, you've seen the uh, movie Tin Cup, right? I have, yes. So I think I've talked about this before. There's a, uh, there's a wonderful scene. It's not necessarily a great movie or anything, but there's a wonderful scene at the end. He's a, a, a golfer, and he has the opportunity to either hit a very, very long shot over water and to try to make the green or to take the safe route and to lay up right in front of the water. And in his heart of hearts, he knows that he would be betraying who he is as a golfer, and more importantly, who he is as a person, if he were to take that safe route and to lay up. And so he proceeds to hit ball after ball after ball, trying to make it over the water. And one after another goes into the water until he finally makes it over. But in doing so, he obviously 
forfeits his opportunity to finish at the top or, or, or to win. And I'm not saying that Greg Berhalter is Kevin Costner's character sitting there hitting ball after ball after ball. And at what point do you say, well, you are hurting yourself and you're hurting the others that you represent by doing this, by not being pragmatic, by not taping, taking the, the, the safe way out. I think in life uh, and in soccer, because soccer is part of life, people doing things that they are told can't be done or that they can't do, they should be celebrated. And the ones that are successful obviously are rewarded. There are ones that won't be successful. And Greg Berhalter might fail in what he is attempting to accomplish. But for so long, as a soccer nation, we have argued and debated and cried out for someone to actually live up to the words that they say, to actually do something new, different, progressive. And I think we are seeing that right now. At least I, I hope we are seeing that right now. Once again, it, doesn't, it may be successful or not, but I think we are seeing somebody actually having the courage to give people what they want. And sometimes when you get what you want, it's not what you envisioned, and it's not what you thought it was going to be. But this is a moment when we are seeing somebody do something different. And... We can agree or we can di disagree, but I think we all have to at least respect the fact that he is not doing something that he didn't say he was going to do. And he is not doing something that has simply been done in the past. And I hope that he continues to do that. Because if he doesn't, it might be an easier way. It might be a faster way. But if he doesn't, he will be betraying who he is at his core. And I don't want to see him do that because of mass criticism, either by fans or press or, or anybody else. This is what the United States Soccer Federation got when they got Greg Berhalter. And there were plenty of other options. And this is the one that they chose. And with it comes this romantic notion of the way the game should be played. And with it comes a belief that the way the game should be played is with playing out of the back and a commitment and a consistency, even when it goes wrong. And I'm fascinated to see how it plays out. And as I said before, it would break my heart if he, either by his own internal pressure that he puts on him or some external pressure that is put on him, betrayed the principles that he obviously believes in. Because that's not what, you know, that's not what romance is about. And maybe people don't want romance. Or maybe people aren't ready for romance when it comes uh, to the game and when it comes to the U.S. men's national team, especially on the heels of not making the 2018 World Cup. But I'm ready to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm ready for some romance. And I recognize that it could go horribly wrong. But it's going to be fun. Because it was fun seeing Kevin Costner's <laughs> character hit ball after ball after ball. And 
I think that there was a respect and an honor in the way that he did it, and that was reflected in when he finally got it right after so much failure, everybody cheered because it came a point where first it was embarrassing, first there was anger, and then there was even at times begrudging respect and amazement in what was happening. And when it finally came to fruition, it meant it was that much more special. So hopefully we get to that point where the ball does hit the green uh, in terms of this analogy. All right, Mossy, anything before, uh, before we go? Nope, that's it. Thank you very much for tuning in. As always, we appreciate uh, you listening to this podcast each and every week. We'll be back again next week. I'll be back in Los Angeles. Uh, I am here in St. Louis for the U.S.-Uruguay game that we've talked so much about on this pod. Please send us those questions with the hashtag AskAlexi, questions, comments, concerns, all on all the uh, social media platforms out there, and we will use them at future podcasts. All right, we will see you next week. Size the day.